This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Hello and welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. My name is John Dunn. Today is June the 16th, which means the Best Friends National Conference is just three weeks away. Now, if you're going to be there, I want to meet you. And if you're up for it, maybe we can have you on the podcast as a guest for an upcoming episode, because we're going to turn the convention center's business office into a temporary podcast recording studio, if you will. And we're going to be recording interviews over the course of the conference. So if you're attending the conference and you're interested in being interviewed to talk about yourself, your organization, please send an email right now to podcast at bestfriends.org, podcast at bestfriends.org. Now I'm gonna do my best to schedule folks to make the most of the time we have, which will definitely not be enough. So again, if you're interested in being a guest, send an email right now to podcast at bestfriends.org and just let me know what you wanna talk about. That email address will be in the show notes. You can find them on your podcast player. Now, if you're coming, but you don't wanna be a guest, you don't wanna be interviewed, that's fine, but please still stop by the business office at the convention center. Really looking forward to meeting as many listeners of the podcast as I can. So when you're there, look for the signs to the business office in the convention center, and that's where you will find us. Now, I think you'll agree that this field is just chock full of some of the smartest, most interesting people. And this week's episode is featuring one of those people. Dr. Louisa Chan is the regional strategist for the South Central region at Best Friends. She works with organizations across several states, helping them be more effective in their life saving. She's a vet. She's from Australia. Love a good accent. She's a faculty member of the University of Florida's Veterinary Shelter Medicine online program. And I am thrilled to be able to call her a new friend. Here's my conversation with Dr. Louisa Chan. Well, I'd love to start by just getting to know more about you, Louisa, your background. You know, I don't know where you want to start at birth. Might be a bit early, but you know, who are you? Where are you from? What did you want to be when you grew up? Are you doing that now? Tell me all about Dr. Louisa Chan. Um, I grew up in Australia, Sydney, Australia, and I must admit that I wasn't one of those people that, you know, said at three years old that I wanted to be a vet and that was the only thing that I wanted to be. I always wanted to do something in the medical background. Um, I, you know, I love helping people. I want to make a difference. And I actually, in high school, wanted to make prosthetic parts for animals as a job. So I tossed around the idea of being a vet versus being a biomedical engineer. (laughs) Um, And then my parents joked that, well, how many prosthetic hearts are you going to make and who's going to get it? So I went down the vet route, which I don't regret a little bit, like one single bit. I mean, like, you know, it's, and I can't, cannot see myself doing something else apart from being a vet or being involved in animals and animal welfare and stuff like that. So you're in America, you've gone to veterinary school. Yes. What brought you to shelter medicine? Now, right, wrong, or indifferent, I think there is sort of a split in my mind, which is, you know, the split between the private and shelter veterinary worlds. I tend to think of it, again, probably not, I shouldn't, but I do tend to think of it like choosing between the nonprofit and for-profit world. You know, it's going to make it sound like I'm demonizing private vets. Obviously (laughs) not doing that, don't want to do that, but they do seem like divergent paths to choose 
when you're a vet, you know, which route do you want to go down? So what about shelter medicine made you want to do that? I think it's the um, whole kind of helping people. I believe, you know, I didn't know that when I got into vet school, but, you know, as I matured in my career and grown older as a person, veterinary medicine is very much a people job. And throughout my life, I always believe in serving others and helping people and helping others. And I guess like the whole access to veterinary care issues, um, people just not being able to afford afford seeing a vet, that kind of area appeals to me. Trying to solve that problem, trying to put some equity back in society, I guess, you know, because I do genuinely believe that everyone deserves animals and be loved and the whole, oh, you can't afford this, therefore you cannot. It's tricky. And so how to make, you know, what makes this person more deserving of a pet than the other? Like, you know, how to level out that playing field. So that's that piece of it. I enjoy population medicine. So, you know, seeing, I mean, looking at the shelter system, seeing like the whole shelter as a whole, I think part of my um, enjoying businesses and operation type of thing appealed to me in terms of a shelter, you know, running a shelter. And then but I think the main thing is just giving back to the society and giving back to the community and the whole piece of the behavior medicine part that I do generally believe that a lot of the animals end up in the shelters because of a mismatch to the owners or the owners that surrendered them. So how to make that, you know, I guess how to avoid that. It's part of it. I don't know if I... No, that makes sense. So what is your role today at Best Friends? Today at Best Friends, I'm the South Central Regional Strategist. Our team oversees Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, and Oklahoma. And my main focus currently is in the state of Louisiana. And, you know, obviously my goal is to get Louisiana to be the first southern state to be no-kill. And how are things going on that front? Um, it's been going good until recently. But I think it's all the whole the whole nation struggling with, you know, the slowdown of pet adoptions, um, the whole, you know, the whole piece that everything's slowing down, there's more animals being surrendered. And I don't think the downturn of the, it, you know, the projected downturn of the economy helps. And so, you know, trying to put processes in place and trying to encourage shelters to get processes in place to help themselves, I think. It's what we are trying to get at and folks are just struggling because they are so overwhelmed and how are they going to learn new things and put new processes in when they are already, you know, trying to scramble to not sink. So, you know, trying to find that balance going, you know, you can't, I know you are struggling, but if you don't do this, you are going to keep struggling and it's not getting any better. I don't wish COVID 2023 but what can we do to not solve well solve will be a good way but you know how to get out of this massive fire those states you listed you know the ones you work with when we look at the data we know that there are places that still have lots of needs for animal life saving but there are also places with huge struggles for people right when we talk about the social vulnerability index, something that we've started looking at at Best Friends, understanding where people are struggling and really seeing that connection to where pets 
also need help as well, right? And, you know, again, the areas where you are, the impacts of the economic crisis right now, just really being felt in a big way in that South Central region. I, I can't imagine how difficult it is down there right now. Yeah, I think it's, 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 it's a struggle. And then there's always the whole piece of going, well, if the people are struggling, what priorities do they place on the animals? They almost feel bad, you know, sometimes going to some of these more underserved areas going, hey, like, you know, we're from best friends and we have resources to help your animals. But they're like, well, the people aren't getting food. Like, you know, why are we or like, you know, the people are struggling for the day-to-day life. It almost sounds so bad when we go in and say, we've got stuff for your animals. I think I just innately feel bad that, you know, why am I going there to say, hey, we've got, you know, I can offer your animal shelter, all these things. But the real problem of it is, you know, the people are struggling. Yeah, it's tough. But, you know, we can only do what we can do, right? Uh, You know, we can't solve all the problems all of the time. But, you know, every little bit helps. And, uh, gosh, I feel like it was somebody on the podcast recently, and I'm sorry that I'm not going to be able to remember who. But, you know, this idea of like, okay, somebody has a thousand problems, and some of them are animal related. I mean, if we can just help even with some of those then they've got the ability to focus more on some of those other issues that we can't help with. So really anything that we do helps, you know, and uh, you're worried about how you can feed your pet this month. Well, that's, that's a problem we can alleviate. That's true. That's a good way to see it. I mean, I do think it's a one health thing. Like I always believe that there's a, everything's intertwined and, you know, the human animal bond is strong. And then, the, you know, we need to tackle this whole access to care in all sorts of care away in a one health manner that, you know, the humans, the, the human, the human medical care, the animal medical care, the human access to care, <laughs> the animal access to care and the whole community is one big piece. You know, that's the thing when we talk about these issues on the podcast, some of these bigger like societal issues, they require so many resources to fix not just more than what you or I can do, but more than what best friends or all of animal welfare combined could even fix probably, you know, but I think it's just why we have to keep focused on, on doing what we can. Absolutely. I guess we just have to chip away at it. Like, you know, one little bit at a time, right? That's what I tell myself. Like, you know, if I could get one little bit at a time, then that's one step closer to a better world. I like big ideas. I like to pretend that I'm a superhero. Hey, man, you are a superhero. Oh, thank you. I try. I think everybody doing this work is. Well, listen, I want to ask you about the veterinary shortage. One of these issues, it's plagued the industry for a long time. You know, I think we've been able to manage on the whole, but it does seem like we're running out of options in many places. I mean, ultimately, we just don't have enough vets. And you're a member of the faculty with the University of Florida's Shelter Medicine Program. Is that right? What do you teach there? The program that I teach is um, for graduate students. So they are either already veterinarians in shelter medicine or in private practice or, you know, whoever is interested in shelter medicine. And there's also, we've also opened the program up to other shelter professionals. So we do get a very diverse student body ranging from EDs to the medical director to the shelter vet to the vet who wants to get into shelter medicine to the I want to get into vet school type of students. So with the veterinary shortage, why do you think we're struggling to fill these jobs? I think there's two parts to the answer. The first part is I don't think 
people getting into at least when I went to well when I went when I went to vet school shelter medicine isn't a thing I mean I, I did my internships and stuff like that at a shelter but you know I don't think the whole shelter medicine is a entity in itself and it's definitely certainly not as you know a specialist thing then it is now and so it's come a long way so all the older veterinarians might not actually know what shelter medicine is involved so they don't know that piece and likewise with a lot of the younger younger people who are getting into the veterinary world like you know you go you take your you love animals that's a typical story right you love animals you take your animals to the vet that's your that's what people perceive a veterinarian to be they don't perceive a vet to be a scientist they don't perceive um you know, the vet to be, to work in the ag department, they don't perceive, you know, even a typical vet, you don't, in your head, you don't see they the large animal vet that works on a dairy farm or the other alternative paths of being a veterinarian or that sort of thing. The typical vet in most people's image is the vet at a small animal practice with the dog and the cat. And, you know, the shelter, the shelter medicine veterinarians don't have a public, often don't have a public facing face. So the general public don't see them unless you're in community medicine, which then it it crosses that line between the, you know, the private practice vets and the shelter vets. So I don't think folks in the profession and outside of a profession completely understand what the job entails. It also doesn't appeal to everyone I certainly know that I used to think I don't want to be in shelter medicine because I don't want to be the person that puts all the shelter dogs to sleep like you know I I don't want to be that I want to save lives I don't want to be that obviously this is like 20 years ago um so what do people know about shelter medicine and understanding the scope of the job so that's a piece of it the other piece of it is that there is just a vet shortage all around. So not just in shelter medicine, but even private practices are struggling to find vets and keep vets. And it's a whole big cycle of why is there a vet shortage? You know, are we, it certainly doesn't seem like we're not graduating enough vets, but where are they all gone? Apart from many, many of us are burnt out from being in private practices. Yeah, so, you know, how to address this problem, how to make the profession a friendlier place just to follow people's lives. And I think people in general demand more with work-life balances now, which it's very fair and needed to be. And the veterinary medicine world is such a emotionally charged world. I mean, there's obviously the science to it, but the emotional part of it is very draining. If you I may, mean, and I, I still remember the day well, one of the times when my boss in back in my the the clinical practice I worked in in Sydney said that you know the day she's she's like a whole generation older than me, um and she said that you know the day when you don't stop caring is the day that you should stop being a vet, which is so true. I mean, if you don't care about your patients anymore, then you really shouldn't be you in the wrong profession. But then you know I can recall countless nights I lay in bed thinking about my cases so you don't stop right and, and then you just like go into the cycle of I'm just so tired <laughs> and I'm burnt out 
but yeah. So I was born and raised in England. My whole family's English. Uh, we're from the north of England, Yorkshire, uh, and all creatures great and small, the James Harriet books and TV shows, all about the vet and the Yorkshire Dales. I don't know if you're familiar with that. That's my that's my favorite book when I grew up. Yeah, I mean, I think it really inspired so many people to become vets and to help animals in general. I mean, it was such an, a, an influential mm-hmm. piece of pop culture in that way. And I, I was thinking about it the other day because there's this newer uh, version of it on PBS right now. And I was just thinking how amazing it would be to have a TV show out there about being in an animal shelter, about being a shelter vet, Mm -hmm. not a reality show. I know there have been some versions of that over the years, but, you know, just something that can get people introduced to this work in a way that they can connect to it on that emotional level. So, you know, it's not, as you say, something where people just think, hey, if I go do that job, I'm just going to be putting pets to sleep all day. There are a lot of misconceptions and, you know, fiction, fictionalized or not, I do think something like that someday could really help show people the helping side of what we do. Do you enjoy your job? I love my job. You know, I love I love being able to help different shelters solve problems and you know and I like to say we imagine the story that it could tell to the communities. Um so I, I love it. Um and I it never ceases to amaze me and I'm so encouraged by every day how much people want to help and and how much people just wants to try to do better um so I, I i love i'm encouraged by the fact that you know you see this little shelter in like rural louisiana that just wants to do better like and i want to be able to help them to do better um and it's nice to be in the best friends role that i could help them to do better um so that's that's really nice and encouraging um and i never I'm also very encouraged to see how communities step up to help when they ask to. Um, I think trusting the community is a big issue. I hear that story all the time you talk to um, different shelters and then they are like, yeah, like, you know, I want to do this, I want to do that. Um, but there's no, no good adopters in my area. I'm like, why not? Like, you know, why do you think there's no good adopters? And then they give me a bucket list of excuses. It's actually like repeated big towns, small towns, big cities, small cities. It's pretty similar. And then you find that everyone has the same misconceptions, I would like to say. Um, like, you know, why? why? Why put the barrier up and why judge? Like, you know, is it in your place to judge that that person is less deserving of a pet than you? Um, why what who gives you the authority to judge um but i also yeah but then when you actually say let's just try you know let's just try and put this to bed um and then you see communities come up left right and center and say hey like you know we can help we can do this we can adopt a pet um and i think just putting the trust back in your community like you know why do you not trust the community i mean you you choose to live there or you choose to work there why do you not want to trust them you know i don't i don't want to say that maybe i'm just naive to think that everyone has always believed that 
everyone has some good in them and everyone has a story to tell and you just need to stop talking for a bit and listen and everyone you can always learn something from some, everyone you know regardless of who they are it sounds very airy fairy but um I, but I, that's why like you know I, I really do think that you know I can learn something from everyone you know regardless of who they are where they're from and that put a bit of trust in them and they would step up in whatever way they could they might not be adopting an animal but you know can they come and help you walk a dog or even if they can't even appear at a shelter can they then tell their friend hey like you know we there's this cute dog at the shelter or there's a dog at the shelter that could need help maybe like you know it doesn't take very much but just trusting your community and then just seeing the change that we could make and then you do that and then you kind of prove the concept that hey you know maybe maybe your community is not that bad and seeing that change in the people who have to say, you know, the director's eyes, the, um, you know, the head of the department's eyes and going, oh, yeah, maybe we can reimagine the story that we tell. Maybe our people aren't that bad at all. And see, they all really actually like us or we are not the dog catchers. Like, you know, we, you know, we are here to collaborate. I believe in collaboration and helping each other out and partnering and all sorts of things instead of me tell you to do this or you tell me to do this. So I love that part of my job to retell stories in a different way and to just make the society better. <laughs> like, you know, in a, to make the world a better place. Sounds like a three-year-old thing saying, but I generally want to do that. Lisa, thanks for taking the time. I know you're super busy, but as we wrap up, is there anything else that we didn't talk about that you wanted to talk about? You know, anything could be best friends, University of Florida shelter medicine program, anything we didn't talk about that you want to mention? Um, my whole, my whole gripe. So I, I don't know if you should put this on. <laughs> I don't know how you're going to edit this thing. Um, I'm just going to do my current soapbox thing that might may or may not be relevant to your podcast um but that shelters need to back to the whole putting processes in to help themselves shelters need to put processes in to help themselves because i think a lot of shelters are now seeing the problem that you know they're so used to things like let's transport our animals out this might piss people off so <laughs> but this is hard this is this is real and this is hard conversation but this might be triggering to people but anyway i'm just going to say it <laughs> um that there's a certain element of learned helplessness currently that frustrates me sometimes that people are so used to say transporting animals because it's an e it's a somewhat easier solution, right? Like, you know, I have 30 animals that I need to send that, you know, I need an out life outcome for. The easiest thing is put it on the trolley board or put it on an Excel spreadsheet, you know, to my rescue partners up north and they will pull it and I'm done with that piece, you know, that, you know, maybe the hardest piece would be getting medical certificates signed off or whatever, but bang, off they go repeat rinse and repeat rinse and repeat and you know that's almost the easiest solution I mean like once you found your find your rescue partners that are reliable but currently as we all know everyone's slowed down and so the rescue partners up north aren't able to take in the animals from the south so a lot of the shelters are now stuck because that was their 
reliance they rely they've been relying on this as the sometimes one and only life outcome and so then you know then they're like scrambling left right and center I mean you hear them on you you see them on the networks partners page on social media you see them on you know you get it in your emails every day on Facebook or on their own pages going we're stuck we can't get these animals out because so-and-so wasn't pulling animals or whatever, or trying to scramble to find out what partners. But, you know, so I always feel transport, transport is needed, don't get me wrong, because there's so many animals that needs out here. But while, you know, transport only buys you time eventually. And so while you're doing transport, you really should also be spending time figuring out how to solve your own problems. Or, you know, put in processes at your shelter to how do we increase adoptions? How do we get the community more engaged? How do we get more fosters? That sort of thing where some shelters didn't do and now they are scrambling. And, you know, when they're scrambling, like I said earlier, you don't have the bandwidth to then say, let's start an adoption program because you don't have that. You don't have that time. You don't have that space to do all that. You know, so we need to step off that notion that people up north are better. Like, you know, that all their communities are better. Like, you know, I, I hear so many times that people say, oh, you know, they find a better home up north. Like, I live down south. Why am I not worthy to be a good adopter? I think I'm a good adopter. Like, there are good adopters everywhere. There are good people everywhere. Why do you, you go into that conversation or what, that space of thinking that they are better up north? Like, who says there's no bad people up north? Like, you know, this is not magic unicorn and, and rainbows up north and we all bad. Like, no, like, you know, back to the whole trusting the community piece because the community is your solution to the problem until you believe in your community, until you work with your own community because they are the people who ultimately chose to live here and would be the people who step up because everyone wants to be in a good community. People up north aren't obliged to save you from your problems because at the end of the day when everything goes bad and goes south they're going to save themselves first that's human nature so you need to get a buy-in from your community and you need community-driven solutions thank you to bethany hines kayla sebo whitney blighton kim clonch brent tolner tawny hammond and mark peralta for helping to produce this program my name is john dunn and this is the best friends podcast